zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Howling, released April 10th, 1981. It was written by John Sayles and Terrence H. Winkless, based on the novel by Gary Brandner, directed <laughs> by Joe Dante, and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. Avco Embassy had a very busy 1981 with Scanners and Fear No Evil thus far, and Dead and Buried, Final Exam, Escape from New York, and Eye for an Eye, Carbon Copy, Time Bandits, and Road Games still to come on our calendar. Not to mention Take This Job and Shove It or The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, which are not currently available anywhere on home video, though Kino does have a Blu-ray coming for Take This Job and Shove It. Also missing from our calendar are Dirty Tricks and Tulips, neither of which got confirmable wide releases in the U.S., but which I will probably cover in minisodes next year. In 1977, Gary Brandner's The Howling novel was published. It was the first book in a three-book series. Producer Jack Conrad intended to write and direct the film when he purchased the rights to Brandner's novel. Eventual executive producer Robert Ream, the president of Avco Embassy Pictures, had worked with Joe Dante at Roger Corman's New World Pictures on Piranha. Dante replaced Conrad as director, and Terrence H. Winkless was hired to adapt the screenplay. John Sayles was brought on to do an additional rewrite, having composed the scripts for Dante's Piranha and the Corman-produced Battle Beyond the Stars last year. The saddest part of Joe Dante's involvement is that, at the time, he was circling a script for a third Jaws movie, but it would probably have never happened anyway. The script, entitled Jaws 3 People Zero, would have transitioned the franchise into a parody film about the cast of a crew of a fictional Jaws sequel about an alien shark. Supposedly, the opening scene featured Jaws author Peter Benchley being eaten by a shark in his backyard swimming pool. So you're saying Jaws 3 People 0 would have jumped the shark? Ah, uh, but before that was a thing. And maybe even before the Fonz jumped the shark. I don't know when that happened. So I okay, imagine so when did 80, he jump? 84 was probably when he did it? No, I think the show went on for a while after he jumped the shark. 77. 77. Okay, so he had already jumped the shark by the time this franchise jumped the shark. Yeah. Anyway, Rick Baker had provided the visual effects for Piranha and was an obvious choice for the comprehensive effects needed for a werewolf movie. Baker and director John Landis had spent almost a decade developing werewolf effects for a future project together, but as Landis moved further and further into the world of blockbuster comedy, Baker grew confident that the film would never happen. It was then he got the call from Dante and he brought his existing werewolf designs to the project. Unfortunately for Baker, the next call was from Landis, who was finally ready to begin pre-pro on his werewolf project, and was enraged to learn that the plans had been forked over to a competing project. Rob Bottin was a lifelong fan of makeup effects when he wrote a letter to Rick Baker at the tender age of 14 to request an autograph, including in his letter schematics for his own homemade makeup effects. In place of an autograph, Baker wrote back offering him an apprenticeship. Over the next seven years, the two worked together on many films, and Botine even branched out providing solo makeup effects, 
and was even roped into playing the lead monsters of films like The Fog and Humanoids from the Deep on account of his stature. Botten stood six foot five. Landis's fury eventually won out, and Baker was browbeaten into leaving his assistant, Rob Bottin, in charge of the Howling's effects. 21 years old at the time, Bottin based his werewolf design on vintage woodcut images from the dawn of werewolf legends. For whatever reason, The Howling was awarded Best Horror Film at the 1981 Saturn Awards as if it had been released in 1980, beating out Dress to Kill, Fade to Black, The Fog, and The Shining. It took home the award before it was released at theaters. That's weird. It was still in production. Do they have like some kind of strange schedule? Like like a fiscal year? Versus I couldn't a- find a good explanation for it. It was nominated but lost Best Makeup and Best Special Effects to Scanners and Empire Strikes Back, respectively. Filmed in 28 days on a budget of $1.5 million. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Pretty great. That's, I mean, pretty great, especially because, I mean, I guess maybe the talent wasn't as well known then. Right. But like Kevin McCarthy, I feel. There's a lot of like people that were worth more money than that here, but Joe Dante knows what he's doing and he picks people that are cheap, but great. Mm -hmm. The success of The Howling basically got Joe Dante the job of directing Gremlins for Spielberg and to show his thanks to the film, Dante included a smiley face sticker on the refrigerator in Gremlins as a reference back to this. Dante has been publicly critical of the novel that served as the source material, including at a lecture for the Hollywood Scriptwriting Institute, where a man asked, So you don't like the book, huh? And Dante said, No, not really, whereupon the man identified himself as author Gary Brandner. (laughs) So that's fun. Whoops. Does he have specific gripes with the book? Dante? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Presumably what the stuff that they changed from the book, which (laughs) we'll we'll go over at the end. (laughs) Okay. In big red slashes, the title of the film is carved onto the screen, and then the title explodes in shards toward the camera. Do you guys recall the last time the title shattered toward camera like that? Oh, I remember Richard saying how much he liked the effect. Oh, great. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for putting me on the spot. You know what? I seem to recall Jesse saying how much he liked the effect. It might actually have been Robert Leininger. You might both be confused. Oh. Do you remember what he guessed it on? Well, He's only, Friday the 13th. There you go. <laughs> Friday the 13th. We start the film with a characteristically Joe Dante montage of television signals. A common theme from the clips we hear are descriptions by news anchors of a string of heinous murders. We finish the montage on a segment with Dr. George Wagner, who speaks on the nature of man heard people talk about uh, animal magnetism, the natural man, the noble savage, as if we'd lost something valuable in our long evolution into civilized human beings. Now, there's a good reason for this. Which bears a striking resemblance to the speech Tony Randall will give as the brain gremlin in a much later Joe Dante film, Gremlins 2. Oh, we may stumble along the way, but civilization, yes. The Geneva Convention, chamber music, Susan Sontag. Everything your society has worked so hard to accomplish over the centuries, that's what we aspire to. We want to be civilized. I mean, you take a look. We cut to the control room where the broadcast is being supervised by Fred Francis, played by Kevin McCarthy, and named after the famed cinematographer and trog director, Freddie Francis, who also helmed the 1975 British title, Legend of the Werewolf. Fred advises his editor to cut away to Anchorwoman Karen White's remote segment as soon as they have a signal. We cut to Karen as she moves down a dark alley alone. A man puts his foot against the wall to block her path and asks her price. 
She guesses the man's name. Eddie? The man suddenly recognizes her as the woman on TV and lets her pass. Back in the control room, Karen's husband, Bill Neal, reviews footage from one of the recent crime scenes with a man named Chris. Karen finds a phone booth with a happy face sticker inside and steps into the booth. She reports her location to the newsroom via an invisible microphone and describes her situation as a jackpot. Apparently, happy faces are Eddie's calling card. On the other end of her communication, only the street name Western comes through. A technician complains that all the neon lights can fuck with the transmission capability. They put in a call to the cops on the local beat to keep an eye out on Western, and we cut to a bathroom where a reporter speaks directly into camera. He mentions in an expositional anchor person voice that this Eddie character tried to open a line of communication with Karen by phone. The KDHB news team began working with local police to link Eddie with a recent string of fate. Karen's husband enters the bathroom. Hi, Bill. That's a, that's a brave little old girl you got there. I like that he's just ditching his anchor person accent yeah. for yeah. Southern style when he's talking. Bill heads back to the station where they're monitoring Karen's transmissions, and she tries to let them know that there's a man waiting outside the booth. Jesus, there's a guy standing right outside the booth now. I don't know if it's him or not. Do you remember the last time we had a character mention that someone was waiting outside the phone booth? Um, Atlantic City? No. Um, I think there are some phone booths in there. I know. Room. I was trying to think of phone booths. That was the first thing that came to mind. Um... He says, There's someone waiting for the booth there. Why don't I just come on over? Oh, that's modern romance. That's correct. One of the men in the room recognizes Bill Neal's name. Apparently he's something of a sports star. I think college football, because they don't say a team, they say a college. Yeah, and, and you, we see a picture of him in in his uh, uniform. Uniform later, yeah. I was going to say outfit, but I was like, no, <laughs> that's not what it's yeah. called. Sports. <laughs> we see him in his sports ensemble outfit. later. <laughs> In the phone booth, it finally rings. She answers, and it's Eddie. He asks if she's alone and dressed as he requested. The signal to home base cuts out completely, and Bill starts freaking out on the people who've put his wife in danger. I mean, they say they're they're working with the police on this. It seems right. There like, should be someone with eyes on her the whole right? time. Right. Yeah. That's what I would think that you you'd put some plainclothes cops like just around the general area yep. to to just kind of keep an eye on her and or like. The, have a police van nearby so you aren't going to get this kind of interference all the way back to the to the tv station yeah she takes instruction from eddie and then steps out of the booth to offer it to the man outside played by roger corman who helped joe dante get his start in film as the producer of piranha bill is still freaking out about his abandoned wife and chris assures him that they have police nearby to locate her she moves into a porno theater and tells whoever's listening that she will leave the transmitter open she moves through the dangling crystal curtain into the back room and past a row of doors into the one with a happy face sticker on it. She steps inside, takes a seat, and a hand reaches out of the darkness behind her and puts coins in the machine to start a film playing. The porn they watch was actually shot for the film in Joe Dante's garage. Oh, he shot a porno. That's, oh. A woman is being held down on a bed by a group of men and her clothes are being torn off. Hello, Eddie. I knew you'd come, Karen. We have a lot to talk about, you and me. She wants to turn and see him, but he keeps pointing her at the screen while he speaks. In the control room again, Bill fidgets while the director switches camera back and forth for the doctor's interview. We cut back to the porno theater, where Eddie tries to explain to Karen how the people on screen are just images. They're not real. He tells Karen that she is uniquely alive the way that he is. 
Do you guys recall the last time we covered someone being shown a snuff film against their will? Shoot, I can picture the scene. You guys hated it. Nothing personal. Effects. Home movies. Effects. <laughs> I guess nothing personal is a snuff film if you if you get off to <laughs> baby seals being yeah. <laughs> smashed. Oh wait, what about um? No, I guess home movies. That was that was just the dad in. The, never mind. Yeah. Sorry, I was thinking of the projection of the family right, watching. Right. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. Eddie's voice deepens impossibly, but he keeps speaking to her, and she slowly turns to face him. The projector light over his shoulder obscures the details of his face. She tries to scream, but she can't make a sound. She just chokes on it like a dream scream. The man working the theater lobby confirms for a pair of police officers that a woman just came through and is in the theater now. They hear her choke screaming in the back, and the younger of the two officers discharges his weapon through the happy face door. Yeah. And we see blood spatter across the floor, implying that he hit his target. The older cop advises him to put the gun away before he does any more damage. On the news later, cameras follow Karen as she moves through the theater and announce that the man killed in there was, in fact, responsible for the string of killings plaguing the city. A lieutenant on scene announces that the dead man was unarmed, and the older cop is quick to blame his partner. Don't ask me, Lieutenant. Ask quick draw McGraw here. Bill and Chris walk Karen out of the building and set her down. They let her know that she won't have to go on air tonight, but she's distracted by the faces of people watching her, as if they're all suspicious of her intentions here tonight. She can't even recall what exactly happened inside because she's likely still in shock. We get a really cool transition here. She's sitting on the hood of a cop car, and we see the terror in her face when the camera cuts in real close. Then it pans off to the right, and Rack focuses to a fireplace mantle littered with trophies and framed photographs, and it comes to rest on Karen sleeping on a couch, meaning that for production, they were shining a fake police light in her face in the living room at the start of the shot, while the camera panned across the mantle, she was running around the back of it to lay down on a couch and pretend to be asleep before the frame caught up with her. Yeah. It's a total Joe Dante move, but it's perfectly fluid and it still conveys the passage of time really well. It looks like Karen's sleep here is restless and she sees flashes of the happy face stickers in her memories. She sees the theater and the man's silhouette and suddenly freaks out again until her husband Bill can shake her awake. She still can't remember the man's face. I didn't see him. I turned around, but I didn't see him. She sobs in Bill's arms. So I know she keeps saying, like, I didn't see his face, but presumably they have they now have photographs of his face. Like maybe not in in, in if we're getting into spoilers. Yeah, yeah, but, that's fine. But the, the, they have human pictures of a human male. Yes. From you know, so he would she would know. I, I, I can't imagine her not seeing these photos. Like, even in, as far as from a police well, investigation, is this the man that you saw? I think when she says, I didn't see him, I didn't see him, it's her brain blocking out what she did see, which was a werewolf face okay. when she was getting attacked. And so she refuses to believe that because that means she's insane. Mm-hmm. And so she tells everyone she didn't see his face. And so if they show her the picture, it's like, okay, fine, that's what he looks like. But that's not what he looked like to me when I was there that night, so I'm just going to pretend that what I saw didn't exist. We cut across town to a large green building where reporters Terry and Chris are checking on Eddie's apartment for proof that he's the killer. If it looks to you like the house from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's no coincidence, because the films share art director Robert A. Burns. The animal bones and scraps of paper are all over the place. The walls are coated with illustrations, but the sound of invisible flies gives the room an assumed odor. Terry leans out the window, and 
I assumed we were above the first floor because it's a very tall building that we're checking. And suddenly there's a dog barking in the window. Yeah. And that's how we reveal that it's the ground floor apartment. But like, they know who this guy is. You'd assume that the cops would have been here first. Maybe they were. But who knows? Terry finds a drawing on the floor that looks a lot like Karen. It reminds me of the sketch that Zat did where he might have overdone the hair a little. <laughs> Amongst the newspaper clippings that line the apartment walls, I noticed one that said, Death by Man-Eating Piranhas, an obvious reference to Dante's earlier film. The actress playing Terry here, Belinda Belaski, was actually in that film and met her death by man-eating piranhas. Terry suspects that it may be time to call the police just as Chris finds a large landscape drawing of a small cove somewhere in what I would guess is middle to northern California coast. So the police haven't been here. Or they have and they didn't see the significance of this drawing but yeah she says we should call the police like they have some information that police would be interested in i don't know why they're here first they present the drawing to dr george wagner because they want to hear his complete nonsense opinion of what art says about the killer the only real thing they've learned from this art is the killer's last name quist assuming of course that he is a reliable source and signed the work accurately we cut to karen and bill in bed and we start with an extreme close-up of Eddie licking his lips before Bill goes in for a kiss, and Karen shoves him back, startled by the insert, and apologizes. She tells him she needs more time, and he says he understands as he rolls over. She has a large bruise on her shoulder, implying that, temporally, we are still fairly close to the attack. Back in the newsroom, Terry and Chris walk Karen up to the desk to resume her position as anchorwoman. Fred steps forward with, what I'm sure he thought were encouraging words. Well, we're going to make ratings history tonight. You're going to be the cynosure of all eyes. What is that? That means that everybody is going to be watching you. Everybody wants to see the lady who caught Eddie the Mangler. Terrific. Everybody takes their places behind the news desk, but when it's Karen's turn to speak, she can barely choke out a sound again. She's frozen in place and sees the woman from the porno film reflected in the camera's lens and the killer silhouetted in the stage lights. Fred makes the decision to cut away and pull her from the news desk. They cut to a pre-recorded editorial message read by Fred himself. Terry helps her off stage as Fred deals with the situation in a sensitive and not at all racist way. Who knows, maybe she's pregnant. Well, we Listen, get in touch with that Fujiyama Fujimoto or whatever the hell her name is and get her ready for the 11 o'clock report. As he leaves the control room, he points to the still-playing tape of his own message. Now there is a pro. We cut back to Dr. Wagner's office and he's trying to help her remember the events of that night. She's forgotten everything from inside the booth. She admits to problems with Bill. Dr. Wagner's recommendation is that she and Bill head out of town to stay at The Colony, a resort area that Wagner owns and only recommends to patients that he deems worthy. We fade to them driving the road to the property. On the way, Karen is actively worrying that relaxing will help her remember the event that she has repressed. Well, I hope these people aren't too weird. We cut directly to the screaming face of John Carradine, here playing Earl Kenton, who appears thoroughly intoxicated at a party around a campfire on the beach. Karen and Bill meet Jerry, the man roasting meat on a spit over the fire, but turn down a serving as they don't eat meat, or at least Bill doesn't eat meat. I feel like you can't go to a place called The Colony and expect people to not be weird. Right, yeah. yeah. Also, if this guy was a professional football player at one point, he eats meat, right? Like, what, what caused that turn? Uh, that he's not a professional football player anymore? I guess. He still he's looks health, like one. health conscious. Meat's, meat's okay. 
Mm-hmm. Environmentally conscious. Oh, maybe that's it. Either way, I felt like it was early for people to be so understanding of his vegetarianism. Mm. Then they bump into Jerry's wife, Donna, who serves Karen a backhanded compliment. Oh my God, we watch you on the news all the time. Uh, you're our second favorite, right behind, uh, what's the name of that Oriental girl, Jerry? They're quickly introduced to Charlie, the rancher who donated all the meat to this party. As people dance around, we see Earl is talking to himself about how he can't go on like this. Bill approaches a woman named Marsha, who hands him a drink. She's totally eye-fucking him, so he mentions that he's married. I, uh, I'm looking for my wife. Why? Bill has to step away before things get any more awkward. Dr. Wagner is here and he walks with Donna and Karen through the sand. Suddenly, Marsha walks up and stuffs a book called The Gift into the doctor's arms. She says she doesn't want her brother reading that stuff. When she leaves, Donna straight up calls her a bitch and an infomaniac, but the doctor thinks they could all learn a lot from Marsha. Earl watches couples kiss and dance on the beach and turns away, but still sees their shadows dancing on a nearby rock wall. Bill casts occasional glances in Marsha's direction until Earl tries to hurl himself into the fire. He's only stopped by the efforts of Charlie and Dr. Wagner. The other revelers blame it on drunkenness and attention-seeking. That night in their cabin, Karen has visions of Earl shouting that mix into a howl outside of their room and she sits up in bed. She moves to the window to listen for the sound when it happens again and she wakes Bill. The howling stops, but she tries to convince him that she heard wolves. There's something howling before. Okay, sure, somebody's dog. Not like any dog I ever heard. Honey, you were raised in L.A. The wildest thing you ever heard was Wolfman Jack. This is the country. There's another Wolfman reference for the pile. Also, just sleeping with the window wide open. Yeah, that's odd. I, I, I don't get like how comfortable you are out in the country at night. There's going to be bugs yeah. yeah, at the very least. Put that screen up to keep the werewolves out. <laughs> yeah. Like that screen from... Uh, the dogs of war that was supposed to keep the military police from attacking Christopher Walken in the mm. morning. Do you remember that joke? Nope. Anyway. Oh, it was the mosquito net. Okay, I can remember yeah. your joke now. <laughs> she still can't sleep, and we cut to her stoking a fire as a POV approaches the house. Despite apparently being scared, she steps outside with a flashlight and finds a piece of fabric hanging in a tree. But more animal noises scare her back into the cabin. We see Marsha's brother, TC, waiting in the trees, watching her. The next day, Donna and Karen are playing tennis, and Karen admits that she's embarrassed for calling the police on animal sounds last night. She called the police about howling in the wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> You're in the wilderness. I, I, I hear howling at my house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it, she grew up in coyotes. California. She should hear coyotes all yeah. the time. Yeah, but yeah, you just close the window. Yeah. Then you don't hear them anymore. But what are they going to do? Go arrest the coyote? <laughs> That's where the coyotes live. <laughs> That's why, like, the kids get upset when there's bugs outside. I'm like, they live here. You can't be upset that there's bugs outside. They're probably <laughs> mad that we're in here. <laughs> they can't suck our blood from inside the house. Right on cue, Slim Pickens, as Officer Sam Newfield arrives in response to the call about coyotes. He recognizes Karen from television. We cut to the morgue, where reporters Terry and Chris speak with a morgue attendant played by screenwriter John Sayles. They ask about taking a look at Eddie's body to investigate a tattoo he was reported to have. I'm sure there would be a photograph of it in whatever Again, file yeah. mentioned it, but they have to see it in person. The attendant has human organs and his own lunch sitting on the same steel tray in accordance with the movie Morgue Law. <laughs> he leads them to Eddie Quist's drawer, 
On the way, he tells them about an old co-worker named Stu Walker, who clocked out one night and hours later was re-delivered to the morgue, having drowned in the ocean. Stu Walker is, not coincidentally, the name of the man who directed the 1935 film Werewolf of London, which is credited as the first werewolf movie of the sound era. Before that, there was no howling. I feel like there's a lot missing from a werewolf movie with no sound. When the attendant drags open Eddie's shelf, the body is gone and the door is beat to fuck. You don't suppose somebody could have stolen him, do you? Well, he didn't get up and walk out on his own. That night, Donna and Karen are hanging out when they hear a cow mooing and then moaning. She asks Donna to get Jerry's rifle so they can pursue the sound with flashlights. On the way to the sound, Donna talks about how great the colony has been for her after the failures of Est, TM, Scientology, Iridology, and Primal Screamers. Do you recall the last character we covered who's worked her way through Est and TM, amongst many other... What? Yeah, it was in that... They're in the car, and it was... Um, was that New Year's Evil? It was New Year's Evil. Very good. Est also gets a mention in The Incredible Shrinking Woman when her neighbors claim that they went through Est with her. Yeah. They stumble up to the mangled corpse of a cow and their flashlight dies. Donna tries to fix the light when they are startled by Officer Sam and Rancher Charlie, who thought they might be cowjackers. I want to be a cowjacker. Does that just mean you steal cows? Just collect cows on your own? Is that a big problem out here? Sam confirms that this is not the work of the coyote, and there are more mangled cows up the way. Bill goes hunting with Jerry and friends the next morning. In place of hunting dogs, they rely on TC's nose to lead them. Besides, who needs dogs? We got TC. That boy's part blood out. I still think it was you, FOs. Them cattle mutilations. Good, Earl, good. You watch the skies for us now. That'll be your job. At the time of production, John Sales was working on a script for Spielberg called Night Skies that involved alien cattle mutilation, but the project was abandoned in favor of the more lighthearted E.T. the Extraterrestrial script, which would of course later star Karen actress Dee Wallace. Karen shows up to give Bill a kiss and send him on his hunt. The men follow T.C. into the woods. He moves like an animal, and he's also dressed in all furs, but I'm sure that's not a sign of anything. The music for this scene is a bizarre fit. It's like Carnival Muzak. I yeah. don't really understand what's <laughs> happening here. I, I was watching this movie. I watched this movie with my niece because I was just like, hey, you want to watch a crazy werewolf movie? Um, and she's like, what's with this music? Yeah. <laughs> we cut to Karen's group therapy session with the doctor. She's reliving the incident, but again, insists that she can't remember his face. We get bits and pieces of the memory spliced in. The police bullets come through the wall, and the camera dolly zooms into Karen's face as she gives up on the memory. We cut back to the hunt, and Bill brags... <laughs> Bill Brasky! Bill Brasky! Bill bags himself a rabbit, though it looks like all the other hunters are just sitting back waiting for him to hunt alone. They're just watching over his shoulder as he shoots at a rabbit. They compliment him as though he's pulled off some amazing shot and not hit a rabbit that was ten feet away and as big as a dog. Yeah. Well, so, I, mean, I don't want to get into spoilers, I guess, yet, but, I mean, they they are sitting there just watching him hunt because what else are they doing? Like, what They were going to hunt the coyotes that were making gonna the They're going to try to hunt the, the, the thing that... They're going to kill every coyote in this entire valley. Or they're looking for wolves or something. I don't like, know what I don't doing. know. Well, so, I guess they're putting on a sort of show. Yeah. 
like okay. a show of force like you're right there must have been wolves we'll go look for them hey look we killed the rabbit that was howling all night why did we shoot at this rabbit you know, I forget. Those ni- night howling rabbits oh my god have you ever heard a rabbit get attacked at night it is horrifying oh god now i have to try it <laughs> <laughs> We used to like. I mean, we. I did grow up in the country, and you leave your windows open, and you will hear, you know, something get a hold of a rabbit, and it screams, and it sounds like a person screaming. I think Richard has an easy fix for that. Close your window. Close that window. <laughs> yeah, just close that window. It's hot in the summer, Richard. <laughs> it's so hot. It's worth hearing a rabbit scream to death. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing like a warm blanket and a rabbit scream to help you fall asleep <laughs> sounds like an eight-year-old being murdered jesse have you finally heard the screaming of the rabbits <laughs> I have. it's disturbing i ate his liver with some fava beans hey i got it first shot and he said he wasn't no hunter <laughs> We cut to a pair of nuns entering a bookstore. The manager of the bookstore is Walter Paisley, a common character name for Dante regular Dick Miller, who tells Terry about the wide variety of clientele they see here, including the Manson family, who he claims were chronic shoplifters. Chris asks if he knows anything about groups who might steal bodies. Paisley directs him to a book on body snatchers, which is fun because Kevin McCarthy's been in a couple of those movies, and he's also in this one. What, what I like about this is... This character is not just like some know-nothing character. He he knows his stuff. He knows like his entire shop. He's read every book here. Yeah, I I, I really like that. This is like a just like a detail is that, and and he while he doesn't believe it because he says like I'm trying to sell merchandise here, so I gotta act like I know what I'm talking about. I think he does believe it. I think when he says, "Well, I'm just trying to sell books," I think that's him covering because he thinks they sound judgmental when they ask if he believes mm. it or not. Terry reads from a book called Warlocks, Werewolves, and Demons about a group who stole bodies that appeared to have been attacked by animals. A customer is flipping through cards for sale in the corner, and Paisley steals them away, insisting the customer buy something. Behind his back, the customer is holding a stack of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, because this is the magazine's founder, Forey Ackerman. Do you guys recall the last time we've mentioned Forey Ackerman on the podcast? <laughs> I feel like... Should this podcast be called Do You Guys Recall? Do you <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't somebody go to the birthday party of, no. Robert did. Yeah, okay. That was in the episode where we mentioned it. It was because Forey Ackerman, or F. Ackerman, was written on a file and scared to death earlier this year. Mm. Chris sarcastically says that they'll have to look up if Eddie was killing during full moons. Hey, that's a lot of Hollywood baloney. Your classic werewolf could change shape anytime it wants, day and night, whenever it takes a notion to that's why I call them shapeshifters. I got a dozen books on it. What about killing it with silver bullets? Well, sure. Silver bullets are fire. It's the only way to get rid of the damn things. They're worse than cockroaches. They come back from the dead if you don't kill them right. Plus, they regenerate. You know what that is? Cut off an arm, cut off a leg, stick a knife in a heart, nothing. They may look dead, but bam, three days later, they're as good as new. You believe in this? <laughs> what am I, an idiot? I'm making a buck here. You want books? I got books. I got chicken blood. I got dog embryos. I got black candles. I got wolf pain. Look at this. Silver bullets. Some joker ordered them. Thirty oh six. Never picked them up. And I'm wondering if that may have been the doctor that he was going to use them at some point. Maybe. Yeah, because because I feel like the doctor character, you know, against getting the spoiler, sorry, uh, was was 
aware that he might be losing control of some situations. Sure, mm. that's possible. That's interesting. But then why wouldn't he collect them? Because maybe like he would finish that order. Yeah, that's well, because some stuff went wrong. Oh, you're saying this might have been when he was human still? N- no, I'm saying that the the you know the whole the whole Eddie on you know stuff started started happening. He got busy. Okay. But I'm wondering why you would leave silver bullets out sitting on the counter. That's got to be a lot of silver. That's got to mm. be. I would lock that stuff up. That's true. Chris pays for the werewolf book that Terry found. Also, I didn't notice it, but the mummified grandmother in the armchair prop from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre attic is staged in this bookstore somewhere, courtesy of our common art director. Back by the cabins, Bill has no idea what to do with his prized rabbit. TC offers up his sister Marcia's cooking prowess, but Bill mentions again that he doesn't eat meat. You kill something you don't eat? Now that's a sin. Yeah, well, I never thought of it like that. TC points him to Marcia again. Marcia prepares the rabbit and shoots Bill more flirtatious glances. He asks how long this might take, but she moves across the room to kiss him. But he shoves her away, and he leaves. He's walking back to the cabin under a full moon through foggy trees, but he keeps hearing noises from the bushes, and we see an insert of a monster's eye. It growls loud, and Bill freezes in his tracks until he is knocked to the ground by a shape that claws open his jacket sleeve and the arm within. He stumbles back to the cabin, and Karen brings him inside. We cut to the doctor's office, where he's administering something with a syringe. At home, in bed together, Terry and Chris, who it would seem are both co-workers and in a relationship now, are reading the book that they bought while watching the 1941 Wolfman. The phone rings, and Chris repeatedly jokes that he'll get it, and not to worry, as a way to ask her to please answer the phone. (laughs) He just keeps saying, no, 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 I'll get it. I'll get it. It's my phone. And then finally she gets up and gets it. Yeah, I do that with you sometimes when the kids want stuff. Right. <laughs> it's a thing people do. It's Karen, and she wants them to come up to the colony because Bill was just bit by a wolf. At the same moment, actress Maria Ospinskaya in the movie on television provides relevant information. Bill just got bitten by a wolf? Oh, yeah, He's bitten by a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Do you guys recall the last time we referenced Maria Ospinskaya? No. Uh, it was at the beginning of the same uh, movie, Scared to Death. Uh, the girl is getting invited to a Maria Ospinskaya film festival. She doesn't know who that is. And she says, no, I was going to watch TV. And she gets murdered by, what What was the alien called in that movie? Not alien, mutant creature. Singenor. Singenor. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you pulled that so quickly. I, I forgot which movie Scared to Death was until you said Alien. I'm like, oh, that one. <laughs> it's not even an alien. <laughs> Terry heads up to the colony alone to give Chris a chance to pitch the special story to Mr. Francis at the station. Karen is happy to see her friend and relays her concerns that Marcia is after her husband. Terry brought barbecue food and apologizes to Bill for not planning a vegetarian option, but he's chowing down on meat anyway, and he tells her not to worry about it. That night, we see Bill sitting up in bed reading Thomas Wolfe's Thomas Wolfs. Because this is... I don't get it. Werewolves. You Can't Go Home Again, which is both wolf-related and true of his character. It's Karen's turn to instigate sex and Bill's to turn her down. He says that he's too worn out from the shots Doc gave him. She's just as mad at him now for passing on sex as he was last time. We slowly push out the window into the trees for a dream sequence with all sorts of colorful lights and flashes of Karen gagged in bed or spinning in the woods. 
Voices from her group therapy session are instructing her to turn around and describe what she sees, and she sees a little more detail of Eddie in the shadows, and then Bill grinning with large fangs. She wakes up and she's alone. Screw you, man. Which reminded me of uh, Cutter's way when he's like, fuck you too, to God, for raining on him. Bill and Marsha meet in the woods near a fire. They disrobe completely. Marsha actress Elizabeth Brooks had made it very clear that she did not intend to appear fully nude in the film and was assured that smoke and flames would be added in post to obscure her nudity. That didn't happen. (laughs) She had a history of refusing nude scenes and said in an interview that it was because I believe in the Bible and have morals. Not only did they leave all the nudity in the cut, but Playboy magazine somehow acquired behind-the-scenes photographs of the sex scene being shot and included them in their Sex in the Cinema retrospective without her permission. Oh my god, how are they allowed to do that? They I don't know. She never shot another nude scene again, and that sounds a little fishy to me, because nude scenes are usually on lockdown or very tight sets, and if photographs from this moment made their way to Playboy, it sounds more like malevolent action taken by a producer at some Mm. point who was like we wanted nudity in this movie and if you're going to be a jerk about it we'll just leak your nudes it sounds like what happened on caddyshack when they sent a playboy photographer to the set and said we're going to shoot a spread with you and she's like no you're not yeah so who do you think do you think that she attacked bill yes or do you think that tc did it for her no i think she did it because she was super horned up and then he walked out on her and then she was like all right fuck it i'm gonna take you right now Dante was allegedly pressured to increase the amount of nudity over the course of the production, and I wouldn't put it past a money person to send a photographer here for this exact purpose. In the scene, the two characters make love by the fire as wolves howl in the distance. The howling grows until it wakes Terry in the guest cabin. She pulls out a microphone to record a sample of the noise. Back by the fire, Marsha unwraps Bill's bandages and licks his wounds, and suddenly the two have fangs and growl loudly. Dr. Wagner hears the growling from his office, and moves to a window to listen. Each time we cut back to the naked people, they are hairier and more malformed. Marcia drags razor-sharp claws across Bill's mostly human back, and we end on an animated silhouette of the complete transformation before the fire in the woods. Apparently this solution was reached due to budgetary restraints. Mm. Yeah, but I still feel like it could have probably been done better. Dante doesn't even like this shot. The next morning, Terry listens to the wolf recording sitting on the beach of a small cove. Bill returns to Karen in the morning, and hung above their bed is a painting of a wolf in the middle of a circle of dead sheep. Bill nearly wakes her, but she rolls over. On her way back to the cabin, Terry suddenly realizes the cove she just left is the one from the sketch they found in Eddie Quest's apartment, and that he must have been here. On the hike back to the cabins, Terry is surrounded by animal noises, and suddenly a human voice that says her name. It beckons her into the wilderness, and she follows its instructions. (laughs) Yeah. I hear a voice calling me into the woods. I run the opposite way. No, no, this way. No, you're going the wrong way. Wrong way. So if we ever need Richard to run off a cliff, stand on the non-cliff side. Mm -hmm. She climbs over a log, and we see a werewolf arm pull back branches to follow her. Or, you know, some kind of hairy arm. I'm assuming a werewolf. Terry approaches a small shack in the woods with a similar interior decorating to Eddie's place. Bones are strung up to the ceiling, furs nailed to the walls all over. In the distance, she still hears moaning and the fluttering of birds. She steps into the shack, and we see monster legs stepping through the woods. Terry finds another illustration of a woman with too much hair for it to be recognizable and takes photos of it. 
She crosses the room to a door with a happy face sticker on it, and inside she finds the same type of newspaper clipping collection completely wrapping a room, implying that this must be where Eddie's body disappeared to. He's still alive. Out of nowhere, all the walls are being pounded on and growling can be heard on the other side. Terry forces open a window and dives out to escape. She collects an axe from a log in the yard and then ducks back under the porch to hide. A big hairy paw bursts out of the darkness behind her and she hacks at it with the axe. It claws her up pretty good, but she manages to chop off the werewolf's arm at the elbow. She watches in terror as the paw slowly morphs back into a human hand. And this is probably one of the coolest shots in the movie. Yeah. His hand slowly turning back into a human hand. I shot it in reverse. No. <laughs> yeah, that's the obvious way to do it. Just pour some Rogaine on an arm, film it for 12 hours, call the police because someone cut their arm cut off. We see her making a run for it back to the cabins without her trusty axe. She bursts into the doctor's office and tries to dial out on a rotary phone to Chris. She begins to tell him exactly what happened, and we cut to Karen waking up from another nightmare. Bill dresses beside the bed, and she asks how his back got all scratched up. He lies that the wolf did it the other night, but she would have noticed them by now. She assumes correctly that these are the work of Marcia. Bill gets angry and defensive because he has no other choice than to apologize. She continues calling him out until he slaps her to the bed. She dresses to leave the colony. Terry gets to the craziest part of her story, that Eddie is here. That's where the body disappeared to. On his end of the phone, Chris is watching the 1934 Walt Disney short, The Big Bad Wolf. She tells Chris that the cove Eddie drew is here at the colony, and Chris advises her to check the doctor's filing cabinet for anyone named Quist. We can see on Chris's desk is a small pamphlet of Allen Ginsberg's Howl. Unclear if he's intentionally surrounding himself with all this pop culture werewolf shit in search of clues, or if these are all supposed to be coincidences. I mean, I think they are trying to find... They're doing research. Yeah, they're trying to find the truth in the lore. But it's funny that they picked Allen Ginsberg's Howl, which is not really about werewolves. Terry finds three folders for Quist, Marsha, TC, and Eddie. And when she looks up, a whole fucking werewolf that never even entered the room is standing on the goddamn filing cabinet. And it's a pretty shocking moment because of how quiet the reveal is, but also because of how much of this monster we're seeing for the first time. The werewolf bashes her to the floor and then corners her, eventually lifting her in the air, kicking and screaming. Chris maniacally dials the police to send them to the colony, but he can only listen as his girlfriend is tortured by this monster. It sinks its teeth in her neck and her legs slowly stop kicking. We see her blood splash across the floor and hard cut to Chris grabbing that whole box of silver bullets from Paisley's store. Fella, those are real silver. I gotta check in with a jeweler to find out what the judge. Bill me. Didn't he order them? Doesn't he know how much they're worth? Yeah, presumably he had a price at one point. Yeah. The guy never picked him up. I mean, how many bolts do you think were in there? It was like like maybe six by five, so maybe 30 rounds. Yeah, something like that. So if 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 each one was about an ounce and silver price in the 80s, so, you know, probably... Are, is the ounce including the gunpowder weight? No, this the silver weight, which would be the bullet itself. Right, yeah. The rest of the bullet doesn't need to be silver. It just needs to be the bullet part. Right. And I'm only assuming an ounce, which I feel is probably heavier. Yeah, I would think so. So, uh, you know, that's probably a couple hundred dollars worth of silver. Something like that. Karen enters the doctor's office to announce her departure and finds Terry's mauled corpse but covers it with a blanket. She uses the same phone to call out but then backs away when voices start echoing in her head. And when she bumps into the gurney where she left Terry's corpse, the body under the blanket sits up, but it's not Terry anymore. Terry's corpse has been shoved to the floor, and Eddie was hiding under the blanket now. 
He begins prowling around the room after her and backs her up to a wall as he moves into the light and we see the bullet hole in the middle of his forehead. Nice shot, though, quick drama McGraw. Through yeah. a wall. Eddie leans forward and actor Robert Picardo allegedly improvises the line, I want to give you a piece of my mind. Before he reaches into the bullet hole to dig the bullet that he's apparently been carrying around for just this moment out of his forehead. Now begins the film's famous werewolf transformation. All sorts of bladders in his face begin undulating, and fingernails protrude from his fingertips, slicing them open to gush blood. His ribcage balloons outward, tearing his shirt away, and his shins start to stretch. It actually made my legs hurt just watching his shins, like, <laughs> creaking. His head is slowly lifted higher and higher in the air, and pointed ears start to poke out of his hair as his snout starts to extend forward. Somewhat comically, Karen waits for this entire two-minute transformation sequence before splashing Eddie with acid that was, like, <laughs> sitting in a cup on the table. Why does this doctor just have acid in the room? Well, in her defense, I don't think she knew what it was. She just was hoping it was something that would distract him. Yeah. And it just happened to be acid. What luck. Chris skids up to a gas station with eight pumps and one car and honks at the only customer to get out of his way instead of just using a different pump. I'm a motorist. <laughs> come on, Take come it easy, on. pal. You know, uh, not all of us have got enough money for a Mazda. Some of us have to work for a living, you know what I mean? Look, I'm in a hurry here. This is an emergency. This customer is a mostly television director and co-EP of ER, Jonathan Kaplan. Karen is trying to get her car started when she's apprehended by Jerry and Charlie and walked to a large barn where everyone from the colony is waiting for her. When they originally set this scene up, all the women were topless in this barn. And then when she showed up on set, Dee Wallace was like, no, these people aren't going to be topless. And they're like, well, we're already set to go. This is how the scene goes and the producers want more nudity in the movie. And she said, yeah, but my contract says how many naked people are in my scenes and I'm in this scene. So those people put their shirts back on. And then they called a producer in the middle of the night who came to the set and was like, yeah, she's right. This is stupid. Everybody put your clothes back on and we'll shoot the scene. There's another bloody victim's body here, but I can't tell who it is because they're turned away from camera. I think it's Terry. Like they moved her body to the barn. Doc stumbles out to meet her and amazingly Karen hasn't put together that he's the mastermind of this whole operation. So she runs up to hug him and he gently lets her down. Doc! (laughs) No. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry to have to let you know this, but uh, I'm with them. We see Chris swerving through traffic on his way to the colony. The various werewolves of the community take turns inviting Karen to join them and, quote, accept the gift, but she's being weirdly resistant. (laughs) Again, Earl rails against the way they do things here, living off cattle instead of humans like in the old days. Doc insists that they need a solid plan before they start eating people willy-nilly. Marcia shuts the doctor up and moves to declare herself the new leader of this group. Chris skids up in his impressive Mazda and loads the rifle. Karen tries to leave the barn and is blocked by TC, who waves a stump in her face to show what Terry did with their axe. But it's going to grow back, right? It's already started to. Doc intends to protect Karen, sort of, hoping that she will choose to join them, but Charlie and Marsha are impatient and beat him to the ground. You can't tame what's meant to be a wild, Doc. It ain't natural. So at this point, I'm wondering, like, because they're all trying to get her to join so was that the original intent because he was worried that she'd remember what she saw and so he's like we have to try to convert her i think so i think that was part of it keeping it secret that there are werewolves at all or or uh, the opposite just to verify that maybe she did see nothing oh maybe yeah and or if she didn't she doesn't join her join then they just kill her right 
Chris pops into the doctor's office and finds a bloody tape deck still playing. Exploring the office, he finds the Quist files. The tape deck switches over to Terry's voice, announcing with her last ounce of strength that she's being attacked. Even though he already heard her dying, he didn't need to hear it again. He just wanted to. Right. (laughs) Eddie's hand suddenly bursts through the window of the office door and snatches away the rifle. Eddie steps into the room and he is backlit so as to disguise the damage that the acid did, but Chris is still quick to identify him. (sighs) Hello, bright boy. Eddie? You know me, and I don't know you. Now why is that? Chris demands to know where Terry is, and Eddie steps toward Chris while they listen to the tape of Eddie eating Terry. Eddie generously hands the rifle back to Chris, hoping to use the moment as a display of strength, and not at all suspecting that Bright Boy would come prepared with silver bullets, because where the fuck would somebody even get those this century? A Mm -hmm. bookstore? (laughs) Eddie starts breathing ragged and transforming again when Chris takes the first shot, and it immediately has the desired effect, and Eddie just starts shuddering. Back at the barn, Charlie advises the rest of the pack to set Karen's car on fire and push it off the road to fake her accidental death. Outside the barn, they find Chris with the rifle again, and as TC approaches and transforms, Chris puts a load of silver in his noggin. Nobody seems surprised when TC drops because they fully expect him to stand right back up again in a minute. And the rest of the wolves continue toward him and inspect their fallen comrade. I have silver bullets in here. Silver bullets in my ass. Get up, TC. Chris shoots Jerry in the heart, at the end of his sentence, and he drops out of frame, dead. Lastly, the doctor approaches and doesn't even begin his transformation before he is shot and killed. Question, was Doc even a werewolf? Yes. I think so, yeah. Because he might have just been leading these people. Well, because I I think because he's pleased that this is over for him. Right, because as he dies, he says, oh, thank God. The rest of the crowd bear their fangs and Chris urges them back into the barn. They lodge the rifle into the double doors and light the barn on fire. It should be said that they lodge a rifle, not the rifle. Oh, right. Yeah. They wouldn't waste the silver bullets locking a door. The barn, fully engulfed in flames, collapses as the werewolves struggle to escape. And the wide shots we see here of the barn in flames are actually from Zabriskie Point because they couldn't afford to burn this barn down. (laughs) As Chris starts the car, another werewolf is suddenly tearing through the ragtop. They shoot the werewolf off the car and then drive away until Karen sees Sam in the road and Karen advises Chris to slow down. Sam bares his fangs and levels a gun at the car and they get low in the front seat to avoid being hit with shotgun shells. Chris pops out of the car and gets Sam in the gut with two shots. He drags Karen out of the car before it explodes and then they try to steal Sam's police cruiser. There are giant wolves clawing at both sides of the car and one bursts through the back window and over the seat to bite Karen on the shoulder before Chris can shoot it back into the back seat. As they get further away, Chris looks back and realizes that they have the corpse of Bill in the back seat. And as they leave the scene, we see three stop-motion bipedal werewolves growling in the street together. Karen expresses to Chris how important it is that they get the word out to people. We see her in makeup right before a broadcast. Not sure I can go through with this. You have to. Lou, at the news desk, reports on the enormous fire at the colony, comparing it to Guiana, before throwing it to Karen, who doesn't freeze up this time. She reads a prepared statement, and in the control room, Mr. Francis slowly realizes that this isn't what's on the prompter. Do you guys recall the last time we had an anchor woman go off prompter to the dismay of the control room? Eyes of a stranger? Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Chris tells Mr. Francis that they changed the script a little. By the time Karen gets around to mentioning a secret society of inhuman monsters, Mr. Francis can't help but laugh. But Chris refuses to cut and shouts at the other men in the booth to continue rolling, as Karen admits from behind the desk that she has proof of the claims she's making. She shudders behind the desk and her eyes glow as she shrieks out to the heavens. Lou runs off stage and Mr. Francis is horrified. Her actual transformation was shot in Joe Dante's office because they ran out of money for a location. We cut around the city where people can't believe what they're seeing on television. Wow! What are you kids watching? The newsletter's turned into a werewolf! Why were these kids just watching the news without their parents around? <laughs> My favorite, though, is obviously Dick Miller, who it seems expected this turn of events all along. Oh, boy. That's why I think he believes in all this yeah. stuff, because as soon as he sees it, he's like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen eventually. Do you guys remember the last time we saw Dick Miller in a montage of people reacting to shocking live footage on television? Oh, he was in bed with someone. Yes, what he was. What was that? I don't remember the movie. Used Cars. Mm. Okay. It's a topless woman on the television, not in the bed. When the transformation is complete, Chris cocks the rifle and shoots Karen where she stands, and they finally cut away to a dog food commercial about tender, meaty chunks. <laughs> in a bar, a few drunks argue over whether what they just saw was real. Things I do with special effects these days. Did you see the one about the guy in the spaceship? It was real. He turned into a werewolf and they shot her. You're plastic. Doesn't mean it wasn't real. The man at the end of the bar orders a hamburger for the lady he's hitting on. Hey Ernie, put a pepper steak on for me, will you? And a hamburger for the lady. How do you want that? How do you want it, honey? Rare. Of course, this is Marsha placing the order, and she will certainly be disappointed with the burger because it sits here cooking for most of the credits. Yeah. And is completely <laughs> falling apart. After the credits, we get one last clip from the 41 Wolfman. Here are some of the changes from the book to the film. In the book, most of the character names are different, and it doesn't involve anyone working in television. Karen does not avoid being raped. She is raped in her apartment, not in a porno theater. The rapist has nothing to do with the rest of the story other than inspiring Karen's trauma. The werewolves of the novel are quadrupeds, like in an American werewolf in London, instead of bipedal. And in the book, they are transformed by the setting of the sun and cannot control the timing. Karen also avoids being bitten or scratched for the duration of the film. So she survives. The first sequel film, Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, <laughs> a.k.a. Howling 2, Sturba Werewolf Bitch, was released in 1985. It features no characters or actors from the first installment, though that wasn't always the plan. It opens at Karen's funeral and tells the story of her brother tracking the monsters responsible through the U.S. and overseas with the help of an investigator played by Christopher Lee who was in the running to play the doctor in this film, but Dante worried, and rightfully so, that casting Lee might foreshadow the character's reveal as a villain. Lee was quick to sign on to the sequel and later apologized to Dante on the set of Gremlins 2 for participating in it at all. It was followed in 1987 by Howling 3, The Marsupials, from the same director. <laughs> it has no story connection to the previous film. Yep. And it takes place in Australia, and IMDb describes it like so. A female werewolf runs away from her family and falls in love with a man who works in the movie business, while a sociologist who studies these creatures is looking for proof of their existence. It, apparently, it actually features were-kangaroos, which is the only reason I might want to see it. And moving forward, all the sequels were direct-to-video. 
Right away the next year came Howling 4, the original Nightmare, which is essentially a faithful adaptation of the original novel, and directed by Watcher in the Woods director John Huff, shot in South Africa. After that was Howling 5, The Rebirth, in 1989, shot in Hungary, IMDb says, a group of strangers visit an ancient Hungarian castle and bring along a werewolf. Credits at the start of the film indicate that this is an adaptation of Brandner's third novel in the Howling series, but it is not. Then, Howling number 6, The Freaks, in 91, actually does borrow elements from Brandner's third novel, Howling Echoes. It features actress Michelle Matheson, whose mom just played the love interest Millie in Jerry Lewis's Hardly Working. IMDb says, A villainous carnival owner traps a young werewolf to include in his growing menagerie of inhuman exhibits. That sounds like a decent one. Mm-hmm. They're all terrible, though. Yeah. In 95, we get Howling 7, New Moon Rising, which is essentially a clip show akin to the Boogeyman sequels with negligible interstitials. Mm. But it features appearances by characters from all of the previous films. And finally, Howling Reborn in 2011, allegedly based on Brandner's Howling 2 novel, but mostly borrowing from the first book, IMDb says, A teenage outcast discovers that he's a werewolf and must battle a pack of brutal creatures when they threaten him and his new girlfriend. Installments 3, 4, 5, 6, and 8 are all available now on Prime Video. In May of 2015, Imagi Entertainment bought the remake rights to the first film and attached IT director Andy Muschietti for Netflix to distribute. Last confirmed about a year ago, but who knows. Doesn't Netflix already have that werewolf series? Do they? Possibly. Hemlock Grove. Maybe maybe werewolves were just part of it. Maybe. Our director here was Joe Dante. Obviously, he's a favorite director of ours. We mention his films often. Before this, he had directed The Movie Orgy and Hollywood Boulevard and Piranha. I had the good fortune of catching a presentation of the seven-hour cut of The Movie Orgy at the New Beverly. It was presented by Mr. Dante himself, and I was sitting a couple rows back from Bill Hader and Quentin Tarantino, who, to their credit, stayed for the full seven hours. I got to speak with Dante a bit at Edgar Wright's festival for the Dino De Laurentiis double feature of Flash Gordon and Danger Diabolic because Dante is an authority on the works of Mario Bava. From this, he would go on to direct a segment of the Twilight Zone film, Gremlins, Explorers, Interspace, The Burbs, all classics from my childhood. One of my favorite screenings I ever had was sitting next to him and Quentin Tarantino for a midnight show of Gremlins 2 The New Batch, which is maybe my favorite Joe Dante movie. Mm-hmm. He also directed Matinee, Small Soldiers, The Hole, and this is actually not the first time Richard and I have reviewed his work for a podcast because he also directed an episode of the recent MacGyver reboot. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, if I'm remembering the story right... This is about The Hole? Yeah. Where was, it, was, it was me and you and we tried to go to an early screener for it. Yeah. And they were like, no, we're looking for kids. This is a kids movie. We're yeah. Like, we're huge Joe Dante fans. We're just like the biggest Joe Dante fans. You gotta let us see it. And he was like, no, this is for kids. Uh, He also wrote Rock and Roll High School, which according to IMDb, he's an uncredited director of. And he also co-edited this film with Mark Goldblatt. The novelist here, Gary Brandner, he was disappointed with Dante's treatment of the material, but he was actually hired as a screenwriter for the sequel, Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, a film he was also disappointed by. And he obviously gets story credits on all the Howling sequels, and I'm sure he's ecstatic about that. Writer John Sayles previously wrote Piranha for Dante, and for this podcast, we've covered his films Return of the Secaucus 7, which he also directed. That was his first directing. Mm. Uh, He wrote Battle Beyond the Stars and Alligator. Later, he writes The Clan of the Cave Bear, Eight Men Out, The Spiderwick Chronicles, and a new Django movie called Django Lives. 
He's been nominated for two screenwriting Oscars for Passion Fish and Lone Star, both of which he also directed, and he appears in this film as the morgue attendant and later in Dante's 1993 film Matinee. Writer Terrence H. Winkless, this was his first screenplay, I didn't recognize the others, but he also directed The Nest, not to be confused with 1981's The Nesting, and Blood Fist, which we'll be getting to way later in the 80s. We mentioned him for a small role in Heartbeat last year, because he went on to direct a large chunk of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. The music here was from Pino Donaggio. He previously scored Carrie, Don't Look Now, and Piranha. We've also reviewed his work scoring Beyond Evil, as well as De Palma's Dress to Kill and Home Movies. He's back for De Palma in 1981 title Blowout, and later Beyond the Door and Going Bananas, which we mentioned in our previous episode as featuring Deep Roy as an ape. Cinematographer John Hora, back with Dante to DP Twilight Zone, Gremlins, Explorers, Gremlins 2, and Matinee. He also DPs Michael Jackson's Moonwalker and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and he plays Ozzy Wexler in Dante's Inner Space. I guess that was a consolation prize for not being the cinematographer of that movie. Yeah. Editor Mark Goldblatt cut Piranha, Humanoids from the Deep, Enter the Ninja, and Halloween 2 from later this season. He also did Terminator, Rambo 2, Predator 2, Terminator 3, Last Boy Scout, Super Mario Brothers, True Lies, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Armageddon, Detroit Rock City, Hollow Man, Pearl Harbor, Bad Boys 2, X-Men The Last Stand, The Wolfman with Anthony Hopkins, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Chappie, and Eli Roth's Death Wish. So he has a lot of really awesome action movies. D. Wallace plays Karen White. She was the mom in E.T., Cujo, and Critters, and she's also in The Hills Have Eyes. She's also Patricia Bradley in Peter Jackson's Frighteners. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. She's so wonderful in that movie. She she has such an amazing energy in that third half of the – third half – uh, the third act of the movie where she's just running around psychotically with a shotgun. Cause it, her dad was crazy, right? Or is she, is she the one that was partnered with Jake Busey? Yeah. Yeah. She, she, it was thought that she was a, like a victim, like that he was taking her along to torture her, but it turns out that she was, she was just as into it as he yeah. was. Uh, she was engaged during the production of this film to Christopher Stone, who plays her husband. And he also plays her husband in Cujo when he was her husband. I like the story, though, of how they got the, the, the roles. Oh, because right. Because they, I guess the person that they, they wanted to, to play this, they, they didn't get, a, a, or they were still looking for a guy to, to play the role of her husband and they didn't have anyone. And she honestly thought that her fiance would be great, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, she didn't want to say, hey, you should cast my fiance. And so um, they just, you know, she's like, hey, I know this this guy. I think it would be really good for the role. And they really liked him. Mm-hmm. And then. But she even went further. Like she pretended not to know his name. She's like Christopher something. Uh, Christopher Sims or something. And they were like Chris- Christopher Stone. Like she was hinting at it because yeah. she knew that they were looking at him. As yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they, they call him to give him the role. And she answers. And he's like, oh, I, I called the wrong number. I was looking for Chris. Uh, and, uh, and she's like, oh, no, no. This is this is the right number. And <laughs> they were like, they were, oh, like, God. Together. It's like, oh, man, guys. <laughs> That's funny. And they stayed together until uh, he passed away from a heart attack um, in the early 90s. Or I guess like 94, 95. Um, but they were still together at the time. Patrick McNee played Dr. George Wagner. His character name in the film is a reference to the director of 1941's The Wolfman. He was John Steed on the Avengers TV series. He's Imperious Leader on the original Battlestar Galactica. He's Tibbet in A View to a Kill, and he's also Sir Wilfred in Waxwork and Waxwork 2. 
We'll see him later this year in The Sea Wolves from the filmmakers behind North Sea Hijack, a.k.a. Folks. And he's also Edward Whitaker in Every Incarnation of Thunder in Paradise, which is that Hulk Hogan speedboat show okay. and movie. Uh, Dennis Dugan played Chris. Not a lot of memorable acting credits outside of this, but he would go on to direct Problem Child, Beverly Hills Ninja, a bunch of Adam Sandler titles, Happy Gilmore, Big Daddy, Chuck and Larry, Mess with Zohan, Grown Ups, Just Go With It, Jack and Jill, Grown Ups 2, of course. Uh, there was a writer for Hill Street Blues named Michael Wagner who had a very hero-at-large-esque feature script about an everyman-turned-superhero named Captain Freedom. And executive producer Steve Bochco convinced him to cannibalize the script into a multi-episode arc on Hill Street Blues. And Dennis Dugan here played the character for four episodes. He was like a superhero on the show hmm. of, of uh, Hill Street Blues. Uh, but he's not to be confused with Jesse Ventura's character of the same name from 87's Running Man. Mm-hmm. Christopher Stone played R. William Bill Neal. The character name comes from the director of 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. He's also Steve Kemp in Cujo with his then-wife Dee Wallace, and he passed away of a heart attack in 95. He was only 53 at the time. Belinda Belaski played Terry Fisher. Her name is a reference to Terrence Fisher, director of 1961's The Curse of the Werewolf. She shows up in a bunch more Dante films, including Gremlins, Explorers, Amazon Women, Gremlins 2, Matinee, Small Soldiers. I think she's the neighbor's wife in Small Soldiers. Mm. Uh, She's the titular baby of J.C. Crowley's song, Baby Come Back. That song was written about her. Oh. Kevin McCarthy played Fred Francis. He's an amazing character actor, best known for his appearance in the original 56 Invasion of the Body Snatchers and a cameo in the 78 version. He's Scrimshaw in Inner Space. Yeah. He's R.J. Fletcher in UHF, and so far we've covered him in Hero at Large and Those Lips, Those Eyes. John Carradine played Earl Kenton. He's Hollywood royalty with credits dating back to the early 30s, including huge titles like The Invisible Man and The Bride of Frankenstein. He eventually succeeded Bela Lugosi in the role of Dracula for Universal's House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. And his character name here is a reference to the director of 45's House of Dracula, Earl C. Kenton. He's Jim Casey in The Grapes of Wrath. He's Aaron in The Ten Commandments. He's in Stagecoach, Around the World in 80 Days. He's in the TV movie Goliath Awaits, which we've discussed a bit on the show. He also shot scenes that were deleted from The Long Riders last year, which starred his three acting sons, David, Keith, and Robert. And we saw him for like five seconds in The Boogeyman last year. Uh, And this year, we'll cover his work in Monstroid, The Monster Club, and The Nesting. He's also the voice of the Great Owl in The Secret of Nim. Slim Pickens played Sam Newfield. The character name is a reference to director Sam Newfield of 1942's The Mad Monster, He's in Dr. Strangelove, 1941, Blazing Saddles, The Black Hole. We've covered his work in Tom Horn and Honeysuckle Rose, and he's also in our Patreon review of The Ballad of Cable Hogue, in which he appeared alongside his brother Easy Pickens for Easy's only feature film role. Elizabeth Brooks played Marsha. This was her first film, and she was originally set to reprise the role for the first sequel, even after they lied about how much nudity would make the final cut, but backed out during contract negotiations. She also passed away fairly young of cancer. She was 46. The role was initially offered to Annette Haven, who turned it down on account of the film's violence. Haven is predominantly a pornographic actress, and it's amusing to me that she turned it down, but that the role was taken up by a born-again Christian woman. (laughs) Robert Picardo played Eddie. This was his first feature film. He'd mostly done stage work before this. 
Uh, and I didn't f- recognize him. I know. Well, at it's all. the hair. I mean, yeah, he, the hair and all the crazy makeup for most of the film. Yeah, he's he's so creepy. But it this. was really funny because I was, you know, like I didn't I didn't look up the the names of the people in the movie mm. either, so I hadn't been looking at the IMDb. And then I I put on that. I started watching that documentary. And I'm like. Wait, what is what is his involvement in this? <laughs> what he was one of the main characters? Yeah, well, it, for a main character though, he has so little screen time yeah. too. He just gets the transformation scenes and then you know bits where his faces are obscured all yeah. the time. Um, but he uh, he has many collaborations with Joe Dante. He shows up in nine of Joe Dante's films, um, other than this one, and even several episodes of Dante directed television shows. He's the cowboy in Inner Space. He's Rick Radnitz in Amazon Women. He's a garbage man in the burbs. He fucks a gremlin in Gremlins 2. <laughs> he might be best known as his doctor character from Star Trek Voyager. And as a cast member of Star Trek, he of course appears on the Orville as well. He's also Bob Marval in Munchies. <laughs> Margie Impert played Donna. That's Jerry's wife. She's also Louise Ratchmill in The Star Chamber. Noble Willingham played Charlie Barton. His character's name is a reference to Charles T. Barton, who directed 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. What does that have to do with the Wolfman? I guess he's in there somewhere. <laughs> we saw him last year as a shitty doctor in Brubaker, and earlier this year as Major Andrews in Harry's War. He'll be back later this year in First Monday in October. He's also General Taylor in Good Morning Vietnam, Clay Stone in City Slickers, and Walker's buddy CD on Walker, Texas Ranger. James Murtaugh played Jerry Warren. He has mostly TV work, but he's also... Alf Hewitt in Blue Thunder in 83, and more recently he's provided the voice of Obadiah Hinton in Red Dead Redemption 2. James Mackerel played Lou Landers. The character name comes from director Lou Landers, who helmed 1943's The Return of the Vampire. Again, I assume there are werewolves in there somewhere. The same actor would return to play the same news anchor in Joe Dante's Gremlins, implying that the films are a single universe. Mm -hmm. He also plays Mr. Thorne in Teen Wolf, and we saw him last year as a Secret Service agent in First Family. Kenneth Toby played the older cop. Uh, he played Captain Hendry in The Thing from Another World, which is adapted into The Thing next year by Rob Botten, who did such great work in this movie. He's also an air traffic controller Newbauer in Airplane last year, and he shows up in future Dante titles Gremlins, Inner Space, and Gremlins 2 as the projectionist. Don McLeod played T.C. Quist. He was a gorilla in Trading Places, and The Man with Two Brains. He played a gorilla in both of those movies. (laughs) He played Gorilla Team in 1995's Born to be Wild and a gorilla on the show Sheena in 2000. So all sorts of gorilla credits. Dick Miller (laughs) was Walter Paisley. The character name is actually a reference to a character that he played in a Roger Corman film called A Bucket of Blood. Paisley reappears, always played by Dick Miller, in Dante's Hollywood Boulevard, and then this, Twilight Zone, Chopping Mall, and the TV remake of Shake, Rattle, and Roll, where he plays Officer Paisley. When Michael McDonald, the voice of Clone High's Gandhi, directed a 1995 remake of Bucket of Blood, he cast Anthony Michael Hall in the Walter Paisley role. He goes on to appear in every Joe Dante film, except, I think, Amazon Women on the Moon, where his scene was cut. He also appears in a deleted scene in Tarantino's Pulp Fiction that you can find on YouTube, where he plays the father of the Julia Sweeney character and the owner of the junkyard that takes the car at the end of the film. He's even in some of his TV stuff too. Yeah, like like uh, I think he's in an episode of Police Squad. Yeah, he's in uh, everything. And, yeah, I think he he's another one of those people that has like 150 some acting mm-hmm. credits. Honestly, the scene in Pulp Fiction doesn't really work. I see why they took it out, but it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, this is apparently Dick Miller's favorite film that he's ever 
appeared in. <laughs> he likes this role the most. Bill Sorrells played Klein. He was Nick Carey, one of the husbands in Witch's Brew last year, and he's also the Bakersfield cop from Any Which Way You Can, and later Surfer Cop in Fletch. Meshack Taylor played Chance. He's Dr. Kane in Damien Omen 2, who suffers the most brutal kill in the film, where an elevator support cable slices him in half as it tears through the elevator car. He's also Anthony Bouvier in Designing Women and Hollywood Montrose in Mannequin 2, which is the best character that he's played in anything. We'll see him next in The Beast Within next season, which sounds vaguely similar to this from the IMDb summary. A young woman gets raped by a mysterious man-creature, and years later her son begins a horrific transformation into a similar beast. Ivan Sarek played Jack Molina. The character's name is a reference to Spanish director Jacinto Molina, or Jacinto Molina, a.k.a. Paul Nashi, who directs enough werewolf movies that his IMDb photo is currently him in werewolf makeup. Daniel Nunez played Liquor Cashier. He's back as a waystation agent in The Legend of Lone Ranger later this season. Forrest J. Ackerman was the bookstore customer. He's referenced by a character in our review of Scared to Death earlier this year, where I mentioned that he's the famous magazine editor, sci-fi writer, and literary agent to authors like Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, and L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. He was previously Dr. Beaumont in Dracula vs. Frankenstein. Back and forth, he played a theater patron in John Landis's Schlock, and then a party guest in Dante's Hollywood Boulevard, and then a jurist in Landis's Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then this in Dante's Howling, and then another theater goer in Landis's video for Michael Jackson's Thriller, and then the President of the United States in Joe Dante's Amazon Women on the Moon, and then a bar patron in John Landis's Beverly Hills Cop 3. So he just does latest Dante, Landis Dante, back and forth. Robert A. Burns was the porn store patron. He's the art director of this film, and as I mentioned, he was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre art director. He also did The Hills Have Eyes, which starred Dee Wallace, and reanimator and he also decorates a second werewolf movie for 1981 but probably not the first one you'd guess an american werewolf in london no the howling (laughs) no a different one other than that what's another werewolf movie from 1981 oh is that that high school one the high school werewolf one i thought you'd go to wolfen for the third one oh wolfen yeah but you're right it's the high school one Full Moon High, it's There you called. go. Okay. It's a Larry Cohen movie, but that's that's our fourth werewolf movie on the year. <laughs> Michael Chapman played the man at the end of the bar. That's the one who, who orders the hamburger for Marsha. He's a famed cinematographer of Last Detail, Taxi Driver, Hardcore, and Raging Bull. He later goes on to lens Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Lost Boys, uh, the bad music video for Michael Jackson, Scrooged, Ghostbusters 2, Quick Change, Kindergarten Cop, The Fugitive, primal fear and space jam roger corman played the man in the phone booth he was the head of aip and later new world pictures producing and directing all kinds of wonderful stuff including the original little shop of horrors and death race 2000 which i got signed on dvd by corman when i met him at the new beverly lobby during an intermission between a double feature i have since forgotten he helped establish a laundry list of a-list hollywood directors coppola ron howard scorsese john demi dante john sales james cameron he has small cameos in the films of his protégés, including playing a senator in Godfather 2, the FBI director in Silence of the Lambs, and a congressman in Apollo 13. He's also largely responsible for the early work of actors Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Bruce Dern, Sylvester Stallone, Diane Ladd, and William Shatner. I didn't know about William Shatner until I looked that up. 
Mick Garris played the man with the TV guide when everyone's wondering why the news lady turned into a wolf. He directed behind-the-scenes documentaries on the sets of The Howling, The Thing, Goonies. He later directed Critters 2 and the original Stand miniseries. He wrote stories and teleplays for Amazing Stories. Uh, he wrote the story for Batteries Not Included, and he wrote the screenplay for The Fly 2. His most celebrated work is probably his screenplay for Hocus Pocus, but he also created the Masters of Horror series. He's the creator on that show. Mm. Hocus Pocus is officially getting a sequel now, and Garris yeah. will presumably get a credit for characters because I think it's a straight sequel with the three witches coming back. It's not like a remake or anything. Okay. Uh, but I'd love for him to write it if it comes to that. Jonathan Kaplan was at the gas station. He's mostly a TV director, but not a lot I know. He did produce a documentary called That Guy Dick Miller about the beloved mm. character actor. Those are all the credits I had for this one. That's it, guys. That's only those credits. You could have dug a little more. I like this movie a lot. <laughs> um, but I have to admit, it starts real strong and it ends wonderful. But the middle is real slow. Yeah. Yeah. Had you seen it before? No, I had not. I thought I had. I had not. Had you seen it before? Um, I have seen this howling and at least two or three of the other howlings. Oh, really? Okay. Did you do a howling marathon? I, I did not do a howling oh, okay. marathon, but I, I have... Just caught them. I've caught them, yeah. yeah. And mostly on TV, so I'm sure I haven't really experienced them. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, we'll uh, do that. We'll uh, watch them all in a row. Uh, especially Ugh. for what I know about part two's nudity. Um, but is I, it, what, what is the story there? For part two? I gotta know. What's the nudity? There's, lo- there's, there's some there's of it. More. Oh, there there's is. Some. There's more. Okay. Yeah. I wondered if the, the point was there is none. Um, and I remember the marsupials ones mostly because most of the makeup looks really crazy bad, like Halloween mask kind of bad. Do you recall where kangaroos? Yes. Because like this woman has like a kangaroo <laughs> baby. And, oh, my God. And like true kangaroo wait, wait, babies. Wait. Sorry. Like she... Ha- like possesses no, one or she gives birth to no one. she gives king- birth to okay. one because what do you say i, I heard about this <laughs> they show it come out of the vagina yes which it's not an r-rated movie but there's a vagina in it that gives birth to a baby kangaroo what? and in the movie and like a true kangaroo baby it's born premature by human standards and she has it to put in a pouch throws into her stomach yeah no it it, it crawls up her body into her pouch she, wait, the woman has a pouch. She's a were-kangaroo. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You're losing the thread here. Okay. We're yeah. discussing were-kangaroos. No, I, I got that. <laughs> in my brain, I wasn't putting two and two together what a were-kangaroo was. In my mm. brain, it was a kangaroo that turned into a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> what is the point of that? <laughs> You're just changing from, from a herbivore to a carnivore? That's it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, really it's just a human that could kick the shit out of you that's yeah, all yeah, it is. Yeah. oh my god okay this is great <laughs> i gotta watch that one now i'm trying to picture the other way now like the top half is a wolf but it's got kangaroo legs yeah. does it go walk around on all fours or on two legs um the other howling movie that i can remember and i only remember the werewolf transformation scene because it was really weird yeah um a guy melts like into a puddle of goo 
and Alex, out of that Alex puddle, Max style. yeah, like like his whole like his like flesh is all coming apart, and he melts into this puddle of goo, and then out of that goo comes a fleshy, melty werewolf <laughs> that then can reconstructs out of the goo. So that sounds more like the guy from the X Men movie, or maybe like what a caterpillar does inside of a cocoon. Yeah, kind of. From what I understand, they actually turn they into liquefy. a liquid. Yeah, yeah. No, no someone may may correct me. Uh, no one that, correct him. Don't that, you that, dare. That maybe that wasn't a howling movie, but I I always remember that werewolf transformation because <laughs> it's like, well, what is the purpose of just having them melt into a puddle and then emerge from the puddle as a wolf? What if you need to be a wolf on the other side of a door? You need to be a puddle, right? You just puddle yourself and then you go yeah, over. Exactly. Yeah. Or you need to get through a grate like Guigi style. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, yeah, uh, this movie's great, but it's slow in the middle, and I—I I mean, obviously, it's it's Robotine, and the special effects are inarguably great. However, the transformation scene should have been cut down more mm. than it was because it runs a little long, and I think it it would have been more effective actually if it had been once once you get the point of what's happening in a shot, you move to a different angle and you do a different thing. Yeah, I mean. If that was an option, yeah, use use the effort put here into more transformations other places in the movie. Sure, yeah. Because um, they disagree. They'd basically run out of money by the time uh, D gets her transformation yeah. at the end. And so there's really not that much attention paid to it. And also she had requested that it not be as I, I, gruesome I liked, as the other I like the way they left it at yeah. the end, though. Because, yeah. you know, like she was... The kinder werewolf. Yeah, she wasn't like trying to be tell, evil with it. Yeah, you can tell which gremlins are good and evil yeah, just by yeah. the shapes of their faces. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I'd seen this movie at least once or twice before, and I, I had always loved it, and I still love it. Okay. So. Um, do we? Uh, it's a thumbs up. For oh sure. yeah, it's yeah. A, it's for sure a thumbs up. Yeah. And you know, horror films aren't my bag. Um, but Joe Dante is definitely yeah, Joe Dante. My, it's, it's, it's like, bag. Yeah, it's like it's that like, kind of thing is my bag, baby. <laughs> um, do we know letterboxed where this is going? Jesse. Yeah, so I have this one at number four out of forty for the year. Oh my goodness. That's pretty good. Oh, I can tell you what it's above and below. Uh, so that puts it below Excalibur and above Omen 3. Richard. Uh, I, I have it lower, uh, but it's in my top 10 still. Uh, it's at number seven, uh, below Cutter's Way, but above The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, again, me and Richard have it at the same number between different movies, though. Uh, I have it in seventh place, but it's under Excalibur and above The Dogs of War. So these dogs are better than those dogs. Mm. <laughs> um but yeah. I didn't know. Oh, I had a thought that I didn't bring up earlier. Bring it up. I didn't want to spoil it. Um, so, I'm trying to remember his name. Was it Eric or Carl? or? Those are not names in this movie. Shit. Um, Eddie? Nope. The, the old Bill? man. Oh, uh, Earl. Earl. <laughs> so when Earl tries to like throw himself in the fire. It's because he-, he doesn't get to kill people. It's because okay. he has to eat. He's eating prepared food. He's like a lab rat that's eating out of a tray instead of going and catching its own. Food. Okay, so he's upset about that and he just wants to die. Yeah, because it's boring. Because okay. he's an old man, he doesn't get to fuck anybody because he's the old man on the beach, and all he gets to do is eat prepared meals forever, 
and he's bored by that. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know if there was more to that story that I was missing. I think that's it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how werewolves work in the terms of, like, they apparently they are not ageless. Unless they stay the age that they were when they were turned. Mm. But, but he talks about the old ways. Right. The old and, ways were the good ways. Yeah, and so it, it makes me feel like that as he is an old man now he's probably actually hundreds of years old that's probably true um and and maybe he is reaching the latter half of his uh, age and that's just how you know he was younger when he was bitten like hundreds of years ago but has aged slowly yeah i was listening to a podcast um it's actually hosted by the arkin brothers like alan arkin's sons okay um one of whom plays the lead in full moon high and they were interviewing the guy who plays jerry uh, I forget the actor's name, something Murtaugh. And uh, he said that when they were on set that John Carradine like had no fucking idea what the movie was about even. He's like, now what am I saying? And they like told him, he's like, why would I say that? And they're like, well, you're a werewolf. And he's like, I'm a what? Like he had no <laughs> idea what was even going on on set. But uh, that sounds right to me. But um, yeah, maybe he is just aging slowly and that's why he looks 90 in this movie yeah. is because he's actually at, you know, 300 or something. And and I don't remember uh, how much we went into the plot of what the doc's plan is, is that he's trying to, to I guess, make them more accustomed to blending in with modern society. Like, mm-hmm. like you don't need to kill people. It's kind of like uh, what True Blood does with vampires, where it's like, yeah. no, we have ways to make fake blood that you can drink that yeah. uh, works the same and you don't have to kill people and we can be accepted. Mm-hmm. Or we can stay hidden and it's a little easier because it's harder to kill people and get away with it now. I do think the plan was eventually to announce their, their presence and be accepted, mm. but not until they had converted, you know, the 7% solution. Sig- uh, yeah, a, a significant portion of the population. Yeah. Or the 10% solution? What is it called? The 7% is Sherlock. Was it the, 10 for MacGyver? Yeah, I think it was 10% for MacGyver, yeah. Which is, oh, that's so, so disturbing. Yeah. Again, that's the episode where MacGyver has to fight werewolves. <laughs> no, they're Nazis. No, he fights Bigfoot. He does. That happens in that episode. And apparently in the state of Washington, it is illegal to shoot Bigfoot. But you can strangle him. <laughs> <laughs> I read that. Good luck. <laughs> he invites you to attempt it. <laughs> He's into it. No, no. Hey, no, no. Really. <laughs> you know what they say about big feet? <laughs> hard to strangle <laughs> right it's midnight can i go to bed <laughs> no i think that's everything for the howling if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd where as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com. we also have a discord now join the 24 7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past present and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord and if you're listening on youtube don't forget to subscribe thank you so much for listening and i hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing night riders which IMDb describes like so. A medieval reenactment troupe find it increasingly difficult to keep their family-like group together with pressure from local law enforcement, interest from entertainment agents, and a growing sense of delusion from their leader. We leave you now with the trailer for Night Riders. Once courageous knights roamed the land searching for adventure. 
ready to brave any challenge. Night Riders. The knight is a fighting machine, disciplined in mind and heart, and noble to the death. Night Riders. Action. Adventure. Romance. Heraldry. Pageantry. And magic. Magic got to do with the soul, man. Only the soul got destiny. Night Riders. They ride for the crown. They fight for honor. That kid thinks I'm evil can evil. That kid thinks you're William the Knight. You're his hero. I'm not trying to be a hero. Following a dream as far as it will take them. Because a legend lives as long as someone believes. This isn't just a roadside carny anymore. Not for some of us. It's a lot more than that. It's a whole lot more. You know that, Morgan. You guys, it's the most fun I get in my life. I just don't want to see you all break up. You think it's breaking up? It's money, Billy. It's all to do with money. Money makes the world go around, even your world. Small town jails is uh, uncomfortable places. Damn uncomfortable. Throw down the gauntlet. Take up the challenge. A new age begins. Romance and adventure live. Knight Riders. The legend is born.